Welcome to We Built This Brand. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm taking you behind the scenes to talk to the originators, marketers, and creators responsible for bringing brands to life. Welcome to the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Hill, and today we're talking with Gavin Baker, the president and founder of Baker Marketing Labs. This was a great conversation that I had with him, and I really enjoyed talking to him about how he got his start in the field of marketing, the Wild West days of social media marketing back when it was just starting to become available for businesses and people were trying to figure it out, and of course, how he built his company, Baker Marketing Labs. Honestly, he had some great insights on how to build your brand and build your business. And if you're just starting out as an entrepreneur, or even if you've been at it a while, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation that we had. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, welcome to We Built This Brand. Um, I'm your host, Chris Hill. And with me today is Gavin Baker. Gavin, welcome to the show. Man, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Happy to have you and happy to be talking to you today about the things that you've done at Baker Labs and your your history, your background and your career growth. So excited to talk about all that today. All right. Well, to start off with, would really just love to hear from you, like your background, where you came from. I know originally you're from St. Louis, Missouri. How did you get to Knoxville? Yeah, yeah. It's, that's a funny, it's a question. It's a, and it's a good, I am from St. Louis. I grew up north of St. Louis in a suburb there called Florissa. And it's, it's really just a testament to relationships. So I went to school in Pennsylvania for undergrad and, you know, put lacrosse in college, graduated spring sport, uh, kind of graduated, wasn't sure what I was going to do, kind of lost the conference championship. And I had a friend from high school um, who actually before high school, middle school, who said, hey, I'm moving to Knoxville. I'm taking a job there. Um, and do you want to help me flip a house? And oh, by the way, I'm bringing a boat and the house is three minutes from the lake. And I said, Sure. And his name's Andy. Andy and I have done lots of projects together before. So it's not as weird as a, um, as a, as an example as it might sound, but I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had, a um, had some career ideas, but I wasn't sure. And, and, you know, my, I grew up in St. Louis, but my dad's a college seminary professor they, they had moved to uh, a different town after I graduated high school, my brother and I did. So, you know, we, we you know, we grew up in St. Louis, but we weren't from there and then they moved. And so there really wasn't any reason to go back. Um, so then that makes a good question about where do you, where do you go? Uh, and so, uh, so that's how I ended up uh, in Knoxville was, was that. Awesome. And it looks like you got your start working at Emerald Youth Foundation and then moved into, it looks like, a, is it a startup, a bunga? Tell me about a bunga. Yeah, it's a startup. And so I'm, I moved to town and um, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I started coaching lacrosse at Farragut High School and had a, had a great job doing that. Loved the team, loved the relationships I got to make from that. But ultimately, it was really just trying to figure out what, what I was going to do career-wise. Economy was doing fine. I mean, all these things were great. And ended up landing an internship with uh, Emerald Youth, which was a great experience. And then um, after that, ended up working at a startup called Abunga. And Abunga was a e-commerce bookstore. We sell books online. And the idea was, we're going to do it in a, a way that is uh, safe for families. Um, and it was, a, it, I mean, it was, a, it was a fantastic learning experience. Um, and honestly, I don't, I got to do some things there that I, I still look back and think that was, that was silly in the sense of we were, you know, almost a results only work environment. We had an office, but it's a very small team. Uh, I got a lot of freedoms and autonomy and responsibility there. I mean, just as a quick story, I remember, um, eventually 
kind of fast forward. I started in marketing. Some some things happened inside the company. Ended up being asked to run the company, and and so I'm and I, I'm completely un- underqualified. I mean, not not even underqualified. Like zero <laughs> qualification. Like negative qualification. You, you had a bachelor's degree in business, though. I had a bachelor's degree in business. <laughs> I know how to read, uh, and you know I like books. You know, and that was where we landed. And so, um, and I remember sitting outside. Um, in the afternoon, and this is like 2007, 2008, right? Like no one's working outside in 2007, 2008. And I'm getting off this phone call with a, another book retailer that we we're talking about a piece of a partnership with. And I remember getting off the call with the CEO of that, that phone call and thinking, does he know that I'm 23? Like, does he know that? Like, I, I don't know. Um, but he didn't act like he knew I was 23. And then the second time was like, how cool is this? I'm sitting here, you know, on my BlackBerry when no one, you know, wasn't really a normal thing to have a BlackBerry. Like I said, these cool things, and but I got to learn a lot. I mean, ultimately, it was a it was a baptism by fire, lots of ways. But we spent a lot of money. We did a lot of neat things, and money isn't always the 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 the, the measure there. But spending a lot of money enabled us in me to see some things, um, and ultimately, I learned a lot about technology. Um, I always liked technology, but I learned a lot about technology there. I learned a lot about margins and about partnerships and about even internal relationships and just all of that. Um, it was a very much a trial by fire um, and really set me up. Um, it didn't set me up well for my next couple jobs uh, because it ruined me as an employee. Uh, and so I was so used to the freedoms I had that they were not, I didn't know they weren't normal um, until I went other places and like, well, that was not normal. Those weren't normal at all. But it was really interesting too from a, um, I know we'll get to the brand questions, but from a brand, because we got to, we got to try some really cool things. We got to think through, well, how, how does this influence people? I mean, this is, this is, we're shipping books. It's like, well, our colors were this bright orange color. It's like, what does it cost to get bright orange boxes? Which is very normal now, right? Chewy's got bright orange boxes. I mean, you, but it wasn't, I mean, Amazon had just put their little like smile on the boxes. Like it wasn't a normal thing. And our stuff shipped in brown cardboard boxes. And so it's like, could we do this different? Would that impact the margin, it would be way more expensive, but would it actually have an ROI to it? Um, so we got to experience and uh, try some things. So. That's cool. That's, that's really cool. And having that experience young, I can definitely relate to like, all of a sudden you've got that taste for, I can run a business and then you go into your next job and you're not, and it's, it's kind of feels limiting caged. I don't know how to explain it, but I, I know the feeling. And I don't know that it was a, again, I, it, I think it, all things happen for a reason. Like it was the it was the steps that needed to happen. Um, it really is my even in the agency we have now. It's like well, we hired. Two, I mean, in my career, part of what I'm able to do is say like I've hired six, seven different marketing agencies in my career, which is pretty rare for an agency owner to be able to say that. Most haven't done that. I mean, we were paying a you know at that time we were paying a firm twenty five thousand dollars a month. Right? Like you're like that's a. I mean, that was a lot of. I was that was that was significantly more than I was making. But I'm like, I know what that looks like. I've been on the other side of that table. I know what that looks like. Um, and, and honestly, we do things today at Baker because of experiences I had then as a client. Uh, so it's formational. Yeah, it's amazing what you learn along the way. So you moved on from there. You moved on to Ruby Tuesday. And I was, I was looking out through your LinkedIn. And one thing I realized is like you came on to the scene being a social media manager probably when it was the first time that position was even available. Would that be accurate? Yeah, so I was the first dedicated social media manager hired in the restaurant industry, right? When you think of the majors, like Olive Garden, like those fast casual, that was the first one. You know, there, there's a reason for that. And it wasn't my proudness in, in social media. It was 
really that they were trying to do something different at Ruby, uh, trying to, to accomplish some growth and they needed to, right? They had to be different um, because of how, some of how the industry economics work and they, they had to do some things. And so we can touch on that, but, but it, was a, it was fascinating because you know, I go from this small startup that's basically losing money. I mean, we were not making money. That's why I left because uh, we closed it. And you go to, we go to Ruby Tuesday and at the time our marketing budget was $82 million a year. So we're spending a month, a million and a half a week you know, like, like we weren't spending anything close to that at Abunga. Um, but again, went through the agency hiring process, got to interview and vet some of the, you know, and, and at, at a company like that, I mean, people want to work with you, right? Um, and so they were, we were getting the best and the brightest out there to say, hey, we want to be part of Ruby Tuesday's transformation and change. And it was interesting too, because learned a lot about, you know, talk about branding, the power of a brand. I was there at a time when, they were coming, they were reinventing who they, who they were, but there's a store, a location, visual identity. Um, and it honestly wasn't resonating very well. And that was part of the, that was part of the challenge of why social media was, could, could help social media help solve this because it was a, there was a disconnect that had, that had begun and they were trying to solve it. Yeah. And you were on the front lines of that too, which is really cool. So you got to see that social digital transformation of the brand. Did you learn anything like that you, you mentioned earlier, like taking things throughout your career, was there anything key there that you learned that you took with you as you went on? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there are, there are a handful of things. One was just the, the nature, like, for like big company politics. I didn't learn a lot about politics in that sense, but just the understanding of how big companies operate, right? So my experience at that point had been at small companies. Well, one of the biggest challenges for Ruby at that time, and probably lots of companies, but that I still see today, even with our clients, is that Technology and marketing were vertically different. And when you start applying to tech, social media and then now SaaS products, right? Yeah, you know, think about like a HubSpot or an ESP, like an email service provider. Like, like in, maybe that's whether it's a MailChimp or it's a lot bigger one where it's actually ESP. The problem is they're still not on premise. And so it's like, well, who owns it? Is it technology? Is it marketing? And we ran into these challenges all the time there because it's like, well, uh, technology, uh, you know, social media is technology. It's like, yes but it's not technology that you control. It's technology that you use. So does that mean it sits in IT seat or does that mean it sits in the marketing seat? And again, it sounds really silly, but at a big company where there are divisions that handle those or departments, it, it becomes a, not even a turf war, it just becomes a real question because somebody has got to be responsible for it. So actually as a result, my seat went back and forth. Um, my team went back and forth that I was on. It was some part of the digital team and then it was part of the technology team and it was part of the marketing team. So I had um, 11 desks, uh, 10 desks in 11 months as they tried to figure that out, right? But that, so part of what I learned is like, that's a real thing. At small businesses, it's not. But in big enough ones, you know, where these resources sit is actually an important, and if you want to affect change or, or do something different, you still have to understand those pieces. Um, otherwise, you, you, you won't be successful because you got to understand, well, who's actually making the decision how's this impact other people and what you know what needs to happen on those pieces yeah it's kind of the wild west then so that always made social media fun oh it was i mean like the reality too of even some of that technology wise is like sometimes really smart people make i don't know i don't say bad decisions but they make decisions that, that they don't always understand the impacts of so example mm -hmm. there i mean literally you think about a dilbert cartoon and you think about like just the the stereotypes that sit. so like when i worked there the server that hosted the website was literally in the basement of the headquarters, which they called the support center, but of the headquarters. And so when we sent an email out through our email tool to a million people or whatever, all those people would click a link that went to a coupon 
And that coupon was hosted on RubyTuesday.com, which lived on the server in the basement of the headquarters, right? So, you know, you look at just basic conversion, I mean, click-through rates and, and, and whatnot. All of a sudden, the internet at the office goes out because it can't support that many people clicking. It doesn't have the bandwidth, right? So then, you know, effect of that is no one can email at the headquarters. The customer support team, which is handling all the people who's got complaints, right, across the nation internationally, their, their technology is internet-based. It goes down. So you think all we need to do is, the, the, but we need to email customers, right? We're trying to drive them into stores. And so, it, but that became a battle. Well, I know it has to be here. And like, and to be honest, our website was not complex, right? It didn't do anything special. Real, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, right? It just, you couldn't buy anything on it. You couldn't book anything on it. It just was a, a really pretty brochure in lots of ways. But still, that that was alone was a, I mean, it was, we, we, we were able to get it done. My, I had a fantastic boss. I had two different bosses there. And I, my first boss there was a fantastic team builder and she was a fantastic get it, get done person. And she was able to effectualize the political capital to get it moved. And that enabled us to do more, but man, it was, it's just silly. You think, and like Rackspace exists. It wasn't like there weren't options. It was just, you know, we're a big company, we're a big private publicly held company. We, we need to do it this way. It's like, but it's like right choice. So anyway. No, that that makes total sense. And having been on the literally in the telecom industry as you're at Ruby Tuesday, that's where I was at the time. And you may remember that because we met a few years later and, and had conversations about all that. But but yeah, I, I remember seeing that technology come up and all those challenges. And it's crazy because a lot of that stuff's in the cloud today and you would never think about, oh, we're hosting a website on a server at our You would never think. What? I mean, that's even like Abunga. I mean, Abunga, what we spent, I don't know the total amount we spent, but mil- millions probably. But where millions are spent on today, you could you could literally go to Shopify.com and say sign up and have better than we had, right? You could have reminder emails and van cart emails and I mean all, integrations with shipping and billing. I mean, all this stuff. We had to build all that. So I mean, like, and when I say we, the, the development team, I had nothing. But like still, like it, it's amazing what just the technology progress can enable that you wouldn't know otherwise. Yeah. And so you went on from there. And you moved over to Moxley Carmichael. And I, I think that's when, um, that's when I like to say, like, you kind of came into your own a little bit more. Like, that's when you started teaching at UT. That's when you started doing some other thought leadership stuff, public speaking. At least that's when I started to notice it. In yeah. So I had, I had done, I've been doing public speaking. My first public speaking gig was actually when I was at uh, Ruby Tuesday, uh, which was actually a really great opportunity because everyone wants somebody from a company like that. Um, actually, I was talking to someone recently who was leaving a company. I just said, hey, if you like doing that kind of stuff, that is something that may not come to you as much because at the end of the day, they're really getting that you, I, because my experience was, I thought they were trying to get me. What they're really trying to get was the logo, right? They wanted the, lo- they wanted the logo to put on the website or include. And that turned out to be true for that individual as well, right? They're speaking went down. But for me, I was able to speak at some national conferences when I was at Ruby and I talk about social media, talk about what you're doing. And then that then translated when I went to Moxley, I was probably speaking through, through them, either on the news or on the radio or at a local chamber or at, you know, some, some version of that, uh, PRSRA, AMA, you know, something like that, you know, almost probably twice a month, um, which was really effective. I mean, it was very helpful to me as a, as an adult, just learning to be in front of people and do those presentations and prepare the presentation. And then I think it also helped build up a lot of my you know, just knowledge here locally. I feel like I knew a decent number of people through some of the things I'd done, but that really helped, I think, 
probably lay a lot more groundwork and seed work than I probably even yeah, appreciate at the time. And again, like that's when I think I really first heard your name. So that's, that's why it sticks in my head that like, oh, that's when you, okay, but that's cool. I mean, yeah, I was there almost, I think two years to the day almost. And like, that was a, I mean, I, I spoke, I, I mean, a, a big chunk of my time was spent speaking at nonprofits and, and for-profits and classes and business groups and, you know, all the, all the little civic, not even little, but just the civic groups that exist to, you know, the hospitality groups and just, I mean, all of these things and just kind of bring in, bring in the, what is social media and how does it work and how can it affect you or you know, whatever the topic was, but it typically was around digital marketing or, or social media. So you move on from Moxley, you end up, this is, you starting your own business, right? Greenlight? Yeah. So I really started Baker Labs at the time first. So uh -huh. yeah, so I started Baker Labs, um, which really was just a, you know, a consultancy. It was just being a freelancer-ish kind of thing. It was just me. And which I couldn't have done without my other experiences, right? You, you, I mean, it all stacks together. So having, you know, been at Abunga, having been at Moxley, I mean, been at RT and then been at Moxley, those things all kind of coalesced together. I said, okay, great. This is what I would want an agency to be like. This is what I would want. If I was a customer, this is what I want my marketing to be like. Um, this, this is the pieces. And, I, you know, part of being at Abunga really gave me a technical underpinning. Like I really began to understand how all the pieces work together. So like I didn't, I wasn't coding. I wasn't, I wasn't doing any of that, but I was learning to understand how they all came together, right? This intersection, oh, this impacts that. Um, and then I was able to take that as I went forward in role and in, in a marketing capacity, being able to really understand those things was actually pretty valuable. Cause then when I was able to get to, you know, doing my own thing, I was applying technology in some ways and again, not complicated technology by any stretch, but, but even just that understanding of, oh, like, you can embed a tweet this way, like, which sounds really silly, but to a lot of people, they didn't even know that was possible or understand that. And so started Baker, you know, got some clients and got a roll in and, and was um, like many things. It's, it's not impossible to get, to get going as a freelancer without, you, you only need so many clients, right? Cause, cause they all pay you enough and it's fine. Getting into becoming an agency became more complicated. One of the things that I wanted to do was have a productized business. And so I thought, okay, great. What can I do? So I, at the time I was spending about, I was spending Monday, Monday mornings or Mondays as my strategy day. I said, okay, what is something uh, that I can build from the thing we're doing that isn't, doesn't require my time. And we're not just selling time. Now we never did hourly billing. So I went going back to the thing I learned from Abunga. One of those things was, we got billed hourly. We got billed by, it was a PR firm. We got billed by the increment, just like, like an attorney, right? So I get this bill, for, you think, so you think about $25,000 of hours, right? Even at a decent hourly rate, you know, we get this bill. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like a novel and it's, you know, just single line of what everybody's done and why. And when we were happy and I, we, the bill was the bill. And then as soon as we start, stop getting results, we're looking at that bill and saying, wait a second, why do we spend... $3,400 on document preparation. And it's like, when they don't know, like that's just how it's got built, but they don't, I mean, at the end of the day, they're also not auditing all of that. And not, like, and again, it's not about the firm. It's just, that's the nature of Nick. So I'm feeling nickel and dime. And honestly, we did a similar thing at Moxley. We did, they were very, very clear on like billing by hour, by, you know, by increment. And, and as a customer, I think you feel nickel and dime. You're like, I'm, I, I wanted you to do the thing, but I didn't want to know it was going to, cost an extra, you know, or, or, or you said yes to it. And then, you know, 60 days later you get the bill and you're like, holy smokes, why did it cost that? But you feel powerless or mad or all these other emotions. Cause you wouldn't have said yes to it if you knew it was going to cost what it cost and all that kind of stuff. So we don't bill hourly for that reason. Even to our detriment at times, we do project-based billing. 
because it's we don't want a client to fill nickel and dime. So anyway, all that said, so started Greenlight, and it ultimately was not successful. I haven't written this, and so uh, it'd be an interesting. We can come back to it later. But there's a guy named I believe his name's Nathan Barry, and he has a business called ConvertKit. Um, and ConvertKit and Greenlight started at the same time, and actually at the very beginning, Greenlight had more revenue than ConvertKit. Because uh, he's published, he's a, he does a lot of publishing, publishing of his revenues. And I remember thinking, he got, he got, I think, got ready to the point to potentially close ConvertKit because it just was. And um, we started, but but ultimately, Greenlight didn't take off what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to just be an email marketing company, done for you email marketing, and it just didn't didn't work out. Uh, it wasn't. It was too hard to get the traction we needed. The more, the more we tried to get clients over there, the more we got clients who paid way more money on the banker side. It's like okay. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really exist in any shape or form at this point. No, that, that makes, um, that's really cool. Cause actually convert kits who I use for my email marketing and stuff for humble pod. So, yeah. and that's taken off like a friggin' wheat. I mean, it is the, the growth he has is, is amazing. Uh, it's, in some ways it's a good parallel to like, it literally, we, I don't know that the dates have, were exact, but like they're pretty close. Right. And mine was a done for you service. And his was a, originally a service just like a, like a MailChimp type of thing. And then they verticalized into basically, you know, bloggers and podcasters and personality type people. And, and it's been, it's been incredible. So. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it stinks that it didn't work out, but it's still like, it's a good learning experience and you learned a lot and it sounds like, you know, it was at least worth the experience. So. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it, I mean, we, Baker, I mean, uh, Greenlight was, was fine as a bit. It just never grew to what we, we thought it would be. That's all. So. Yeah, gotcha. Because I, I, again, I think I remember having a conversation with you or somebody about Greenlight at some point. So yeah, like, I mean, we became Mailchimp X, I and mean, we we went down the email path pretty heavily because uh, I think email is a fantastic tool. It's under leveraged by most businesses, but yeah, we went down the path, but it didn't it didn't ultimately pan out the way we needed it to. So. Yeah. So you've got Baker Labs going. It sounds like one of your key differentiators from other agencies is that you do um, the productized service. Um, would that be the right way to say it? Productized or so what I would say for us, we call it just retainer. We just call it retainer-based service um, or flat fee. What we typically do with our clients, the, probably the biggest differentiator between us and most agencies is that we really take a done-for-you model to the to the, to the the hill. So we're saying, hey, we're going to do it all. Um, and so if, honestly, like in a sales call, I'll say, listen, if you want to have a social media agency, an ads agency, an SEO agency, a web design firm, a design firm, great. We're not your fit. Because we can we can do all those things and more, but we it, what we found is that when we when we play a, a a spoke of the wheel, we're we're not as effective because we're just used to having all the spokes, and it just doesn't. It, we, we've got too many questions uh, about the whys and the whats and the and the hows and the it just become, it becomes ineffective. So we and most people, the right people, say, "Man, that's what I need. <laughs> I want one point of contact. I want one person who I know is going to be for me." Yeah, you know, thinking about my business, thinking about the work we're doing, and not trying to navigate. I got to make sure I tell this person this and this person that. You know, and so that's where we where we tend to win. And so we look at it and say, hey, one plus one plus one there equals five, right? Instead of being three, it's five because you're powering it all together. And we have the flexibility to say, well, let's let's swap a resource from here to there. Let's go from you know, let's put more in, in ad spend versus you know this over here. Or let's let's this is working on social. So how can we apply the same idea to to SEO or something like that? Uh, all together versus it being separate. The other piece of that too is most of our clients, they come to us when they know they need to accomplish something, but they don't know how to do it. And so our phrase tends to be, we, we help you unlock the growth you deserve. 
And we normally say like, hey, we, we, most of the clients are saying, hey, I know we can grow, but I just don't. We've tried these, we tried 10 things and none of them worked. And we need somebody that can help us figure out what that path looks like. Uh, and that's where we, we were able to apply our knowledge and our, our skills for that thing to happen. That's great. So why the name Baker Labs? Baker, I can, I can gather pretty easily, but why labs? Yeah, honestly, so it's a, it's a, it goes back to some of the questions we were talking in the pre-show about just like, how do you say it? What's it look like? It, it was the shortest URL that was forward looking I could get, right? So bakerlabs.co. Now I would tell anybody listening, .co is horrible to use if you deal with normal people on a, any kind of basis because almost everybody, I have, it's, it's probably cost me millions of dollars in a truest sense because people refer people to me and they're like, hey, I got your email, but I changed it to .com because I thought you had a typo. It's like, yep, not a typo. That's not my email. It's not my name. And so um, it is a, is a legit problem. Now, if it's only clicking, it's fine. But when you have to say it, uh, .co, .co or .co looks like, looks like a mistake, particularly to someone who's not super familiar with kind of URL extensions and the differences, differences of them. Um, so that's what was Baker, Baker Labs. Uh, it was the idea of a laboratory, the, you know, test facility idea of what to do with it. You know, and from a branding perspective, we've actually switched. Uh, so we rebranded, um, I think it was two years ago, to Baker Marketing Laboratory, which you can uh, you won't be able to see it because it's on my bottle and it's sideways, but Marketing Laboratory. And the reason for that is, as, as we've gotten further along, we've done more and more and more inside of the healthcare vertical. And so one of the things that became confusing in healthcare is that labs are a real thing in healthcare, right? Um, but, it, they, but we don't do what they do. So, uh, and so it became like, you know, what was a dif- differentiator at some point became a confusion point, right? They're like, well, you're a lab, what kind of lab are you? It's like, because you've got, you know, almost every medical facility has labs of some kind. And we were kind of being, I don't know if lumped is the right word, but, but, but and so it became, okay, great. At the same time, our clients were just referring to us as Baker, right? Which at a personal level was a little funny if I'm on a call. It's like, Baker's going to do this and Baker's going to do that. But our team kind of leaned in. They didn't seem to care. And so I was like, well, if they're going to call us Baker, let's not try to push it. So, you know, uh, and then we kept marketing laboratories so we could still have labs would potentially make sense. But that's where, uh, and that would get marketing in. That's why the name is that now, uh, was to help facilitate those two things. Yeah. It seemed, I mean, to have that positioning too of like, I've always loved that about your brand is that you do talk about the lab, lab laboratory lab. Yeah, the labs all mixed up labs. Yeah, laboratory, as we say in the South, I guess. But Baker Labs, I've always liked that about you guys that you have the thought to say this is really our target audience within the name of your business, and I think that's been a really cool feature of your branding. So that's neat. That's neat. Um, when you rebranded, have has your? I'm just re, this is a kind of a random question, but like has your coloring color palette always been the same or did you rechange change the colors too? Cause I've noticed color change. Yeah. We, we changed everything. So we changed the, the visual identity of the brand itself. We changed the color of that as well. And then the name. And really, I think that's an interesting, like a lot of times when you think about branding, so I teach a class on brand management at, at Haslam at UT's school business. And a lot of the students there, depending on where they come out discipline wise, they think of branding or even brand management as just the identity, right? Just the color, just the logo, what's that mean? And the reality is that it's far broader than that, right? Like the brand is not just the color, it's the 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 feeling you get, it's the experience you have, it's the it's the it's the who they are, um, kind of side of things. And even maybe even how it activates with you, right? We talk about brand promises, and it's like the biggest threat of a brand promise is that brand promises don't live inside of 
the organization who makes it. They live in and how how the consumer receives it, right? So anyway, so we changed everything. Yeah, so we switched. This is actually probably easiest to see. So that's my iPad's case. So we switched to a B and an L um, with this color that we we call electric mint, um, and it's kind of this like uh, really bright aqua color. We changed the visual identity for a couple of reasons. One was honestly this. I wanted something that could go on a hat or go on a shirt because our old old logo just functionally was long and wide. Uh, and so it made it hard to put on stuff versus like being able to put this on a, on a, on a vest or on a, on a Yeti. And we wanted to do those things, right? We send, we were actually just on an onboarding call today with a client. It's part of our onboarding. We send the onboarding package, which has, we've got hats and Yetis and shirts and, and stickers and notebooks. And we send that as part of the onboarding. And she gets on the call. First time it's ever seen, she's got the hat on. She's like, I'm ready. Let's go. And it was just such a cool experience. She's wearing this like teal aqua hat that's ours. But that was part of it was how do we, one, get a, a logo and a visual identity that's more aligned with who our target customer would find uh, valuable? We weren't getting negative feedback about what we had. Actually, a lot of people liked it. It just was, I wasn't proud of it, right? I knew it had been kind of created on a shoestring just to get it done. And I was like, we need something that's actually more professional and is more representative of the work we do. And, and the reality is by that time, we had probably rebranded, I don't know, 30, 40, 50. I mean, we had done the work ourselves plenty of times. We said never done it for ourselves. Uh, and so, which is actually the hardest work to do, right? It's hard to do it for yourself. So we changed everything at that, at that time and went to the, the bright green, which has been its own challenge, like learning, right? We picked a great color. Challenge is it doesn't exist when, you, when you're trying to buy swag. Uh, there is a, there, there's a, there's a, a choice we made that that was a little bit, I don't know if it's poor, but if you were to, part of, to me, part of branding is consistency. If you were to look at our swag, all the blacks are the same, but all the, um, kind of the electric mints are different because uh, Yeti has a color that's close, right? Uh, a t-shirt company has a cl- color that's close. Uh, you can get it if you can specify it, um, but fair, fairly often you can't specify those things with, with, that, with the scale wrap. So. I, I feel your pain when it comes to branding and colors. <laughs> so, which is, which is so it annoy, on a personal level, it annoys me because if you were to spread all our swag out on the table, it's all going to be a little bit different. Some's going to be the color of my shirt. Some's going to be here. And, you know, it's like, Again, it is, it is what it is. There's, you know, I don't know that our customers or our clients or most people we talk to are really thinking about it. People listening to this podcast may think about it and notice it, but it, it's not as normal. But I do think something that most people recognize, the feedback we get from our stuff is, because I do think part of a brand, right, is more than just the color, right? It's about what it stands for. It's the values behind it. So like one of our values is craftsmanship. We also want to be seen as authoritative and strategic, right? And so, um, so for example, when we sent out our, uh, we, we, when we rebranded, we sent out to all our clients at like a welcome bag box, kind of announcing it. And the feedback I got from most of them was, man, I'm really, I'm really, I was really excited to see that you, this is a water bottle we have, but I was really excited to see that you guys had Yetis, right? I think that just makes a powerful statement about how much you care about your work, that you give out Yetis, not give out Arctics or Ozark Trails or, you know, what, some other kind of non, you know, we're aligning with the Yeti brand versus just picking a, a an unnamed, you know, yeah, cup whatever those things are. Tumblr, right? They, they probably work relatively the same, but the impact it had was because we were investing in the the more expensive choice. They felt like we were aligned with a kind of a more of a more viable decision, which is kind of silly sometimes, but it's still you know pricing's branding, and so that pricing piece, uh, the value of what that Yeti cost, they knew and they felt more kind of seen in that process. So that's why we use it today, actually. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, people don't always think about the price involved in something, but it shows in like if you're giving that to someone, it's going to feel more 
personal if you do something that's expensive versus just something just to do it. Yeah. Um, I got a security board from a client recently just as a thank you for working with them. And it came from a very specific deli in Portland, Oregon, as opposed to just like, you know, whatever the run of the mill, you know, charcuterie stuff comes from that people get the, yeah, all the sausage and stuff. So yeah, yeah, really meant a lot when it comes like that. So yeah, it, it, it has an impact on the people that you work with and your clients and yeah, that really matters. So how do you approach branding with Baker Marketing Labs? So are you actually going out and I guess you're helping clients with their branding as well. So like, do you have a, an approach to that? Tell me, tell me about how you do that. Yeah. So with most of our clients, we, uh, so we believe, so this is, we have this, it's hard to see on here, but we have these fish, right? Um, they're kind of like the Patagonia fish. And we believe that, you know, going back to what we, our clients, they're, they're looking for this semi-elusive thing, right? They want growth and they know it's possible, but they don't know how to get there. <clears throat> we started to think about that and riff on it and realized that's a lot like a mythology flying fish, right? This idea that if you think back to you know, you know, sailors and you know, Portuguese sailors kind of conquering the world, right? They came back and told people that fish fly. They're like, no, they don't. You know, and, and, and they also told them like the world's not flat. They're like, guess it is, right? So, you know, there's a, but, but the reality is that fish do fly. But the way they fly is not the same as the way birds fly. So the way fish fly is they go down deep. And then as they uh, get deep, they accelerate out and they spread their wings. And that going down deep and then flying out, which is what this kind of envisions, right? Is it, they go down deep and then they fly out. And we want to do the same thing with our clients and help them do that. So when we start, we start with a strategic marketing plan. We spend, a, we spend, we go deep with them to figure out what needs to happen. A lot of times out of that, we cover one of the questions we really walk through is like, are you happy with the visual identity? Is it going to fit where you're going? Right. And the answer can be yes or no, or I don't know, right. That's fine. Um, there's no wrong answer to it. But a lot of times that's what starts the question is like, well, we're going to make these investments in marketing. Should we be making these investments on the visual side of things, right? Or the naming side of things? Because oftentimes what ends up happening is, Chris, they're no longer, they look ahead and they say, okay, in a year from now, our revenue is going to be this, our customers are going to be that. Does this logo that we created 10 years ago still match who we're, who we're going to be? And if it's not, that's where we need to then begin to have a, go through the process of, changing visual identities or changing names or whatever it be uh, to do that. Sometimes that's also tied into uh, brand uh, core values. And we've got a client right now we're doing some core value work with because they don't have that showcased anywhere. They have them uh, intuitively, but they haven't gone through and said, okay, these are our core values that we want to be known for and we want to experience. And every company has different core values because they're all, they're all different. We're all different. So in our world, we walk them through that. Uh, and then that becomes the process of saying, okay, great. Is the, you know, and at the end of the day, too, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of companies make is they don't think about their customer. It's like, well, what does your customer really need, right? Who are they? Uh, what do they need to expect, right? So do they expect it to be uh, a certain color or a certain size or a certain type font? You know, like, what does it mean to them? Because we, at the end of the day, brands become, do become attached um, to that way. So, so the process we walk through is, is a little bit more than just the visual. It's also, okay, how do these other pieces happen? And then we go through, okay, well, how do we represent them, right? So if we do a brand audit for most of our clients as they onboard, they've got, you know, 30 different colors and fonts and choices and, you know, from their shirts, their hats, to their, their print materials, to their logos on the websites, to if they have vehicles. I mean, all that stuff is just a mismatch of, of inconsistencies. You know, one of our points would be that that should all be consistent. Right. You're, you're saying something, right? So, I mean, think of it, if you, one of your, one of your core values is intentionality or precision, right? 
and the guy getting in the car uh, or, the, or the woman getting in the truck has a hat on that doesn't match their shirt name or color, which then doesn't match the truck, which doesn't then match the invoice. Does that line up with precision? Like, probably not. Does everybody notice that? No. But do some? Yes. And so that's where I think sometimes a third party like us or any third party could say, hey, you're not, let's, let's, let's go through and make sure all these things align. And you can make a decision at that point if you want to fix all of them. Because the reality is, you know, particularly when you talk about branding and, and rollout of all that, that, that gets pretty expensive, right? Signage. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's, a, it, that's why, you know, even when I was at Ruby Tuesday, they had rebranded before I got there. And there's still lots of, lots of stores that had the squirrel tail, right? Just like, because of the cost of, of that signage is, is pricey. Yeah, I think the brand consistency thing is really important. I mean, I notice it all the time, but I'm also in this space, in this sphere. I think about my own business, my own brand as we're doing things. And even, even this podcast, like how we brand the podcast and how we make sure that colors and fonts and things are specific. Yeah. It has a subconscious level of influence on people's decision-making habits. And I think that it's really important. So that's, that's really cool that you approach it like that. And um, you help your customers with that. So thinking about thinking on your experience, your professional experience and everything that you've done, what is some advice you'd have to other people that are starting a business and maybe thinking about their brand for the first time? I think where, where people naturally start when they think about brand is they think of the colors and logo. And the reality is that the brand is far more intrinsic to just that, right? It's about what do you stand for? What does he say in Hamilton? If you stand for nothing, what do you fall, what will you fall for or something like that? Anyway, like yeah. it, it's Hamilton to Bird. But the point is what we stand for is actually more important probably than just what it looks like, right? So the ability to recognize, visually recognize a logo is, is, is value. But I think there's also a piece of that of saying, well, who do we want to be or what do we want people to perceive us as, right? And then if we create those standards, then we can evaluate where we, where we don't align with that, right? So like, for example, for us, you know, there, we want to be seen as customer-centric, we want to be, when we're working with someone, customer-centric, uh, we want them to understand that we care about who they are and what's going on in their world. From an external perspective, we want them, uh, others to view us as strategic, not just implementers. The reality is a good chunk of our work is implementation, right? Is doing the tactical day-in, day-out work of, of marketing, of writing copy, of running ads, of evaluating the performance of those. Like that's part of our job. But we don't want to just sit at that layer. Right? We want to be. We want to be higher than that. And I think where most people maybe don't think about it is where do those things fit, right? And then how do those little pieces tie together with with all of that? Um, how does someone perceive getting something, right? You know, we had a client once who they um, used to have a weekly meeting with their clients, their customers, and they presented everything in a embossed leather bound journal, and it was expensive. But these people were spending millions of dollars. And he's like, I want them to understand that we recognize that they're spending a lot, right? And so, yeah, it's a lot of money to put this journal together. But at the end of the day, it's, that was, we want them to understand we care about this. So we definitely care about the details of their project, right? So, it's, so we don't want them to feel like we're just you know, careless, right? Um, and that can be even down to the, the, the quality of paper you print stuff on, right? You know, like, again, it's, it's, and you can go to the nth degree but I do think people should be thinking about. So if you're starting a new company, a couple of things that I think make most people waste too much time on. Unless you're doing e-commerce, your website doesn't really matter. You do need a website, right? So don't, 
don't don't take that to say you don't need a website. You need something, right? You need an online presence, but you probably can waste a lot of time trying to get your website right. When in reality, that's not what's going to propel you forward in most cases, right? You need to have a presence uh, so that people can find you. But if they're not looking for you, that means you have to go, you got to do some other method to get them there. And that's actually better to spend your time on than spending a lot of money on a website or a lot of time building a website when you could be out actually producing value that way. Um, and the other thing about branding or creating is, is it should be intentional, but it doesn't always have to be final, right? So the last uh, thing you do, it, unless you're printing it on, you know, 10,000 pieces of paper or something, I mean, at the end of the day, you can change. Um, and so that may be a freedom from a decision point of like, Hey, it, it, it doesn't have to be final. You just need to get it because done's better than perfect sometimes. And I say that craftsmanship is one of our core guys. We care a lot about the details, uh, but sometimes you can get hung up and you don't move something forward. And so if you're start, particularly if you're starting a new company, that can be, you know, the hardest, the hardest thing we actually just went through this. We're starting a podcast, right? And the name was the biggest thing, right? What's the name? What's the right name? What's, you know, it, it was all these considerations and it's like, we have to pick something. Otherwise, we're never going to go without picking something. And it should have attention to it, but the level of it, the, 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 expo, uh, the there's always the impact or there's the exposure. I have a business coach that talks about that. And the impact of it being wrong or the exposure of it being wrong is so low <laughs> compared to the impact of it starting, right? So you might start it uh, then and, and figure out the name later, right? So, or some version of that, right? So it's, it, 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 that's our own experience, but like, you know, whatever that is, if they're starting something like, Going is probably better than waiting, right? Yeah, getting getting it shipped, getting it out there. Sometimes you just have to say, "All right, we're done. We're moving on." I mean, even starting, we built this brand. We were hemming and hawing about the name and what it should be and what maybe we should do something else and position it a little differently. And like at the end of the day, it's like, well, we're never going to get through this if we keep just talking in circles. And eventually, we had to move. And actually, just what you talked about too, like then the positioning is the other side of that, right? So when you think about a brand, the positioning is where do you fit with other brands inside of that, right? Or inside your consumer psyche or however you want to think about the positioning, but, but brands don't exist in vacuums. And so then you're, you have to then say, okay, how do we compare to others or, you know, in terms of quality or value or exclusivity or, you know, whatever it be. You know, I, I think the reality, what you'll see too, is that a lot of times, particularly small businesses think, well, brands don't really matter, but we have a client. I mean, they got acquired by private equity. And I mean, he would tell you, he told me, he's like, we would not have been bought for the valuation we got if the brand that you helped us build had, the, they told us that we paid what we paid because of the professional and consistent brand presence across all of the locations. Um, and before they came to us, there were nine or 10 disparate logos and sizes and names, and it didn't look co cohesive or professional. And, and that was his, answer. I mean, he's like, we wouldn't have sold for what we got without that. And so I think that's the power of it at scale is because brands are provide safety, they reduce friction, right? Um, even if you don't recognize it, if it looks nicely done and fits who you think it's supposed to be, you feel comfortable, right? If you're on vacation, most people don't pick, This is, I mean, this isn't anything against random Mexican restaurants, but most people don't pick random Mexican restaurants in foreign cities, right? Because they don't, they can't trust it because it's not a brand. They pick something they recognize um, because there's safety in that. And so I think as you think about brands, people start, that is what is enabling is it well-positioned, well-designed, well, well-named. It, it actually helps fuel your success. And sometimes where it ends up happening is the person starting the business doesn't value those things, but just because they don't value those things doesn't mean their customers don't. And that's the risk. They're oftentimes not their customer. And the same thing can be true with your own brand, right? You're not your customer. And so they may not care as much as you care. They may not care about it as much as I care. 
Uh, and so you have to take both of those into consideration of who are we going after and what do they expect from this? Yeah, there's a lot of really good nuggets in there. Thinking, thinking back through what you said, like, I think, I think for me, the big thing is just like making sure that you ship and you get out there and you get, you get it done at the end of the day, you're starting a business or um, starting a new brand, starting a new show, whatever, like getting out there and just moving forward with it is going to do more than having that brand. But you know, at the end of the day, the brand does matter too. And I, I love, love what you were describing earlier about all that stuff. So thank you, Gavin. The tension. Yes. Um, and sometimes you need a third party to help you with that. Right. And it doesn't even have to be a paid third party, but it can be someone to just say, Hey, is this where, you know, what's the impact versus the exposure? I would highly recommend on the print side of things, if you are doing logo work of not asking people around you who are unfamiliar with the process you've gone through, what they think, because that can derail things pretty quickly for most people. It's a common reality. People do it all the time, but you get a bunch, you, you show your logo to, you know, you're at Easter or Thanksgiving, you whatever gathering and you show them, they're like, what do you think? And I mean, you have a favorite and everyone else has got an opinion and you know, it's, you know, you, you end up, you leave confused, not, not empowered. Yeah. That's, that's a good um, piece of advice for entrepreneurs. You know, if you're, if you're um, going through a branding, don't just show it to your wife right off the bat or your spouse. Like, but if, but if you can show it to people in your target audience, right? Oh, yes. That's actually valuable feedback. Yeah. You, you want to get, um, what do they call it? I always say fingertip close to your audience when you're trying to come up with something new is make sure you're actually getting their feedback, the people you want to talk to and sell to. So, right. Otherwise it's just like random acts of feedback. Like, great. That's, completely unhelpful because you're not the person I'm trying to, trying to reach. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Gavin, last question. What is a brand that you're loving right now? So I, th I think of two, I think of just a tire. I think of on cloud. I think of Rory. Those are just brands I think are doing interesting work that res is like resonant, right? Like it, it, it is affecting the people that they're trying to, to impact uh, at that level. I always love vehicles. So I think, yeah, I love the iconic branding of Jeep. Um, even what they're doing with some of their like electric electrical vehicles. And then I think like things like Rivian, they just have done a really great detailed job down to like the branding of the key fobs and just the intentionality behind all that, which I just think, and, and that resonates across the board through their creative, through their messaging. It's authentic. It's realistic. And they just, they're doing some neat stuff. So those are a couple. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's awesome. Finally, thank you so much for coming on today, for talking with the audience and, talking about um, everything you're doing at Baker Marketing Labs. It's been great talking to you. Is there, um, is there anything that you would like to, to promote or let listeners know about? Yeah, 100%. I think if there are people who are walking through, okay, consideration of a brand or a rebrand, or even just a, where do we fit in the market? Should we do something? You know, we have a, the easiest way is to go to our website. We have a free consultation uh, and they'll ask some questions and then they'll sync us up with some time to say, hey, this is what we're trying to accomplish and, and we'll give you some professional feedback on what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. You know, our, and again, it's our perspective on it, but that is something we are, we're more than happy to do. I'm more than happy to do because I do think, again, you don't know what you don't know and someone else in that process who can really help you. So, sometimes people you know, miss the silly, silliest small thing because they they're either unfamiliar or they don't know and that can oftentimes cause them pain that, that we could save them from. If that's you, you're like, man, I need some help. We'd love to talk, talk about that and, and guide you down the path of what you could expect or what you should do. All right. Great. Well, thank you, Gavin, so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to We Built This Brand. You can keep up with us at webuiltthisbrand.com. And be sure to follow the show wherever it is you're listening right now. Seriously, it's just a dapper click away after all. 
And while you're at it, if you've enjoyed this show, please be sure to give us a glowing five-star review. Our producer and host for this episode is yours truly, Chris Hill. Our technical producer is Ashley Lehman. Anissa Ritchie is our assistant producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.